0: Landscaping business here in Ontario boldly goes by the name, better than the rest. This suggests that whatever index that one uses to assess their service, whether it is expertise in lawn care or pricing or customer service, that they outstrip all their competitors. Yet it is not only in businesses that we aspire to outdo others, we labor to rise above others in our professional achievements, in our educational pursuits. Students desire to be the first in the class. We desire to outstrip others, even in recreational activity, an innocuous game like ping pong or two guys playing FIFA on PlayStation can easily degenerate into an all-out war to win. We want to be better than the rest. This desire to outshine others manifests itself even in office dress competition where employees Endeavor to outdress their peers by wearing the latest fashion from Milan or Paris. You know that's true. We all pursue the desire to be better than others. Yet there's only one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can legitimately claim to be better than the rest. It is precisely because he is unique that is without equivalent among men, and without peer, without substitute anywhere. The writer of Hebrews reiterates that Jesus is better. This, of course, claiming that Jesus is better, equates to an understatement. He really means that Jesus is the best. But an understatement has impact and power. And so it is better to say Jesus is better, meaning that he is the best. He describes Jesus in this way, in chapter 1 of Hebrews and verse 4, where he tells us that he has become better than the angels because he has obtained or inherited more excellent name than theirs. Uh, The writer sees it as necessary to tell us that Christ is better than angels, having told us that he's better than the prophets. And perhaps the reason why it is important for him to compare Jesus to angels, it is because angels like prophets were bearers, carriers of divine revelation. And so he wants them to stick with Christ and instead of returning to the law that was mediated through angels he tells him that Christ is better henceforth he brings a better and greater revelation than that which was mediated by angels in order then to establish that Jesus is better than angels in verses 5 to 14 here in chapter 1 he will use seven Old Testament quotations to support his claim, Jesus is better than angels. When you look at these quotations, you're going to see that they, in fact, emphasize three areas in which Christ is superior to angels. First of all, you will see that from these quotations, that he is superior to angels in dignity. Because he is a son of God whom angels worship. Secondly, he is superior to angels in his essence, that is, in his nature or in his being, because angels are created beings, but the Son is immutable and eternal. Thirdly, these quotations will also show that Christ is superior to angels in function, because... He is sovereign and angels are servants. We're going to work our way through this. Let's look at the first then statement. Christ is superior to angels in dignity because he is the unique son whom angels worship. In verse 5, we and verse 5 and 6 in fact represent the first movement in this pericope, in this Brief paragraph. It is the first movement that will be read together. He has made the thesis statement in verse 4 that Jesus is better than angels. Now he begins to defend that claim in verses 5 and 6 and throughout, in fact, these verses. He asserts, first of all, that Jesus Christ is better. And then he quotes the first Old Testament passage, which is Psalm 2. We see that in verse 5. For, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? He's quoting Psalm 2 and verse 7. The Lord, he says, in this rhetorical question, which requires a negative response, has never directly addressed any angel as son, although, The Old Testament does collectively refer to angels as sons of God. But angels are sons of God only in the broadest category, in the broadest sense. That is that they are God's creatures. But God has never, he says, addressed angels directly as the Son. The psalm, Psalm 2, fits in the category of what we call royal psalms. It is a psalm that would be sung at the coronation of a Davidic king in Jerusalem. And in this psalm we are told that although the nations oppose God's king, God's anointed king, that God will laugh at their futile attempts to deter him. That he will indeed set his king on his holy hill and that he will declare, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In fact, the Lord will dash his enemies to pieces like a potter's vessel. And the psalmist concludes Psalm 2 with the call to kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. And encourages those who trust in the Lord, that is in the son who has been exalted, that they will be blessed. Now by applying the psalm to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten to you. The author acknowledges that this statement that was made some 800 years, perhaps before our Lord came, was intended for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one, when one looks at these quotations, one finds them, in fact, surprising. Because we wouldn't ordinarily associate some of these quotations with Jesus. But it does tell you that scriptures speak of Christ. He's led by divine inspiration. Moreover, there are at times, very often, clues in the passage to tell you that the things that are said in the psalm did not refer to any ordinary person, but indeed to the Messiah. And Psalm 2 is one of those. You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the one who will dash his enemies to pieces. This is the one in whom those who trust are blessed. Cannot refer to any ordinary man. The entire thrust of the psalm demonstrates that the one whom God has called his son is indeed the Messiah. Now when you read, today I have begotten you, does not then refer to the son's existence, that is, It is claiming that he exists at a point in time. No, he was already and already the eternal son. But rather, he is now the vindicated son, the one who has now been exalted to heaven, and God vindicates him as his son. And I want you to, by the way, bear in mind that there is this close correlation in these quotations between the sonship of Jesus and his kingship, his reign. So Jesus is greater than angels, first of all, in his... Dignity, he is the son, he alone is entitled son by God. The second quotation, which still pursues this theme of Christ's unique sonship and the dignity of his sonship, comes to us from 2 Samuel verse 7. Again in verse 5, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, tells you that these two psalms are linked together, making the same point about the Lord's sonship. Second Samuel 7, from which this second quotation comes, uh, deals with the inauguration of the Davidic covenant. In Second Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. David had constructed his house and he looked around and he saw that the ark of the Lord was in a temporary shelter, in a tent. And he thought to himself, I'm going to, I want to build a house, a permanent abode for the presence of God. But this desire, though it comes from a genuine heart of love for God, was rejected by God. Primarily because David was a man of blood. He had fought many battles, killed many people. And God wanted his, his temple to be associated with peace. And so he said he rejects David's offer to build a house for him where his presence may dwell. In fact, the Lord turns the table on David in a good way, because the Lord promised that he would build David a house, not a physical house, but a lineage, a dynasty more precisely. That he will bring David kings from his loins, and that he will give to David an everlasting throne. He will have an everlasting kingship. Now, God says, I will take David's seed, and I will be to him a father, and his seed shall be to me a son. Now, there's a sense in which Solomon and the Davidic kings who reigned over Judah partially fulfilled this promise to David of an everlasting kingdom. But they never reign forever. And thus the promise that God will receive David's seed to be his son and he will be a father to this son of David points to somebody far beyond Solomon or any of the Davidic kings. It pointed to a greater David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son of God, the one who has been elevated and has been given an everlasting kingdom that knows no end. At the baptism of Jesus, God himself identified Christ. This is my beloved son. Even at his exaltation, or rather at his transfiguration, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. You see, he is the one who God has elevated to be his king. The third quotation Underscoring the kingship of David and his sonship occur in verse 6. So we read. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. Now the firstborn here does not again refer to someone who is first in rank. Or rather, first in, 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 in time, but first, first in rank. It signifies his preeminence over creation. Now, the creation in Psalm, in in verse 6, comes to us from Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. And Deuteronomy 32 actually is what is called a Song of Moses. It comes after the recital of the law and before his final word to Israel, before Moses dies. In this Song of Moses... He indeed speaks of God, he recounts his blessing to his people, he recalls their provocations of God and his judgment and deliverance. Now in the Greek Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, at Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43, it adds something that is not in the Masoretic Hebrew text. Because in the Septuagint translation of this passage, Deuteronomy 32, 43, the writer states that God summons the angels to celebrate, to worship the victorious God, the one who has triumphed over his enemies and delivered his people. And so he says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, perhaps into the eternal world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. The writer of Hebrews takes this Old Testament passage and he says that Christ is superior to angels. He's better than angels, first and foremost, in dignity because he alone has been identified by God as son and moreover, he is worshipped by angels. If angels are worshipping him, he must be superior to to angels, So what we have seen then in these first two verses is that Jesus is superior to angels in dignity because he alone is son and he is worshipped by angels. The next section in this string of Old Testament quotations actually run from verse 7 to verse 12. We must look at this section then as the second movement in this passage. What we are told then in verses 7 to 12 is that Christ is superior to angels, not just in dignity but in essence, because angels are created beings but the Son is uncreated, immutable, unchanging and eternal in his being. The author is going to contrast Jesus with The angels. And so we have the fourth quotation from the Old Testament in verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who made his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? This passage here in verse 7 comes from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 praises God for his greatness. It tells us, Things like he's clothed in honor and majesty. That he covers himself as with light, as with a garment. And the psalmist goes on to proclaim that this God who dwells in splendor and light is the one who created the universe. But he also tells us that the one who is glorious as God created the universe and he created the angels. So he made his angels winds that's literally what the term means in the original who made his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire now the reference to angels as wind and fire in psalm 104 among other things characterize them as fleeting and transient they are fleeting and changing like the wind and like flame which can gush forth and which also can subside. They are changing, they are transient, they are like wind, they are like fire. That's what angels are like. But in verses 8 to 9, we see now the difference between them and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In verse 8, he quotes the angels. Fifth Old Testament passage in support of our Lord's superiority to angels. And this time he quotes, not from Psalm 104, but from Psalm 45. And Psalm 45, 6 and 7. And there it reads, To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That's what we find in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrew 1. The the passage that he quotes in Psalm 45, 6 and 7, again, is a passage that celebrates the king. And he celebrates this king who has an eternal kingdom. This king, he says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Very interesting verse, very interesting part of scripture. You see, God says to the son, your throne, O God. He calls the son God, that's, I think, very important. And then describes his reign as eternal. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And that this one, his scepter, his rule is in righteousness. He has been given the son who is called God an eternal throne because he is characterized by righteousness. So this son, this one reigns as the righteous one and he reigns as God and he reigns forever. Now, the only one who really and truly reigns as righteous is Christ, the righteous one. He is indeed our righteousness. And he is God. Now, what he does here is he talks about the Son as reigning eternally. Now, if he reigns eternally, it is because he lives eternally. It is because he himself is eternally. You can't have the Son reigning eternally but not living eternally. And that's what he's going to now prove to us by quoting from the sixth Old Testament passage, which is Psalm 102 and verses 25 to 27. And he quotes this now in verses 10 to 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. There is a close connection between this quotation from Psalm 102, 25 to 27, and Psalm 45, 6 and 7, which we saw earlier. And that connection is made by this phrase, and you. If you see that in our passage, where he claims then, and you, Lord, in the beginning lay the foundation of the earth. You will see, in verse 8, he says, your throne. In verse 10, and you. He's still making the same point that the Son is eternal in his nature. What he does here, in Psalm 102, the psalmist, as I've said to you some time ago, just a few weeks ago, that the psalm is in fact a lament, in which the psalmist bemoans his impermanence, his transiency, his finite nature. But he contrasts himself and creation with God. That God is very different from man and very different from creation. For even though creation appears as the paragon of strength, stability, and longevity, creation itself will cease. The Lord will change the heavens and the earth, just like one changes all garments, that this world will cease to exist as it now is. Yet God himself will not change. And so he says in verse 27, Psalm 102, 27, But you are the same, and your years will not fail. The author construes Psalm 102 as a reference to Jesus Christ. Angels belong to the created order. They are like wind and they are like fire. They wax and they wane. They come and they go. They are strong or they are weak. But God, and particularly the Messiah, he is the same. Later on, he will say of Jesus in chapter 13, Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus is greater than angels because as the creator, he is not subject to change in his nature or in his essence. They are mutable and transient, but he is immutable and permanent. So what have we seen thus far? We have seen two things, that Jesus is superior to angels. First, in his dignity because he is a son and he is worshipped by angels. We have seen, secondly, that he is superior to angels in his essence because they are changing. But he remains the same. He is immutable. He is permanent. Verses 13 to 14, here in Hebrews 1, constitute the final movement in this passage. And here, the writer, through these Old Testament quotations, will teach us that Christ is superior to angels in function, because he is sovereign, but angels are servants. We have now the final quotation in verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This is the climax of the entire argument. You will notice that verse 5 and verse 12, or rather verse 13, begins with a rhetorical question. Verse 5. To which of the angels did he ever say? Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said? It's a rhetorical question. It forms an inclusio. It it brackets the section, dealing then with the supremacy of Jesus Christ above angels. In fact, the passage that is quoted here, Psalm 110, is very important to the writer of Hebrews because... You're going to see that five times in this epistle of Hebrews, he makes mention, refers to Psalm 110. You will find that in the New Testament that there are 22 references to Psalm 110. It is the single most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament does not quote from any other book or passage in the Bible than Psalm 110. Psalm 110 begins with a command from the Lord. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It's a command from the Lord Yahweh to another unidentified Lord to sit at his right hand until he subdues the enemies of this other unidentified Lord until he submits uh, his enemies under his feet. Now the question then has been, to which Lord is God the Father speaking? He says to him, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now some have said that it refers to David or Abraham or some other king, but it is very clear that this cannot refer to any other king. David says, That the Lord says, to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, when you read in this psalm, Psalm 110 verse 4, you will find that this king, the one who sits at the right hand of Yahweh, is also described as priest. The Lord has sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek in verse 4. This cannot refer to David. Apart from the fact that David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. cannot refer to David, because David is speaking. It cannot refer to David or any other Davidic king, even Solomon, because this king is priest, and none of the kings of Israel were priests. There's a difference in office between king and priest. However, this one person who sits at the right hand of God, who is king, combines the office of king and priest in his person. Very clearly, then, this person refers to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, and in, in, very intriguingly, Jesus actually used this psalm to shut up his opponents. You know, the Pharisees always had questions and always had arguments. So, Jesus asked them a very teasing question. He he said to them one day, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If David is speaking of this one as his Lord, how is he David's son? You see, he's referring to the Messiah. Of course, the Pharisees never had an answer to the question. They couldn't understand the text. The, the reality is that David will bring for the son, one will come from his line, from his line, from Judah, who will be David's king and lord. The Messiah came from the line of Judah, but he is king over David and king over all. And here then, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is superior to angels in function because he is king. In fact, the entire passage is held together by this theme of kingship, that the Son is king. You notice that in chapter 1, verse 3, when he has purged, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat on the right hand of the majesty on high. The notion of kingdom or kingship, Resurfaces surfaces in verse 5, in the quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Sonship is referred to him because he has been exalted. This notion of kingship crops up again in verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And finally, it appears in verse 13. Sit at my right hand until I make your Enemies, your footstool. The right hand of God refers to the hand, the place of power and authority and reign. And the Son reigns at the right hand of God. And therefore, according to the writer of Hebrews, he's superior because he functions as king, as sovereign over the universe. He sits in the place of all authority and all power. What verse 13 does, it discloses that the Son not only reigns over his people, and not only reigns over creation, but reigns over even his enemies. You see, God will put all things under him. And so he asked the question to clinch the argument of Christ's superiority in verse 14. Regarding the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Christ is sovereign as king over all creation. But angels are servants. Angels stand in the presence of God, ready to do God's bidding. So not only are angels servants of God, they are servants of God's people who are going to inherit salvation. There's a sense in which, as I explained, that God has already given us salvation. We enjoy salvation now. But we have not yet come into the fullness of salvation. We have not yet been perfected. We have not yet finally done away with sin. So we are waiting for the consummation, for the coming of Christ, when we will be finally like him. But in the interim period, between our salvation and consummation, in this gap of time, God has sent forth his angels to minister to us who are Christians, who are saved. The writer does not tell us exactly how Angels minister to us, but ostensibly, they provide us with spiritual strength from God. They protect us, and they bring us encouragement from our Father. The line, then, of the argument, however difficult these quotations may be to understand, seems straightforward. Jesus sits at God's right hand and rules as king, but angels stand before God and serve God and his children. Consequently, Jesus is superior in function to angels. And thus what we have said then is that Jesus Christ, from these passages, is superior to angels, first in dignity, second in essence, and third now in function. At first blush, a passage which contrasts Jesus with angels appear unnecessary and unrelated rather esoteric in a world where we live. We may ask the question, what does angels in comparison or contrast with Christ have to do with life here and now, here in the heart of Toronto? I want to suggest to you that no one can truly overstate the importance of a passage like this. First of all, even in our very technological age, we harbor an enduring fascination with the supernatural. We, we are still, even in this sophisticated age, think about angels. There's a movie, in, or rather not a movie, but there was a series on television a few years ago called Touched by an Angel. Remember that? Carson says it was a foolish series, and I agree with him. Nonsensical in many ways. So somebody dies and they go to heaven and then they're sent back to earth and and they come back and they help a a wife or somebody who's in trouble. Nobody else can see them except the person who's receiving help, touched by an angel. We live in a world where we are enamored with the supernatural. The latest Star Wars movie Which came out, a blockbuster, glorifies the supernatural. It has the Force. It has Jedi's. And don't worry about it, they just have supernatural powers. We gravitate to the idea of the Source and Jedi because, at a primal level, instinctively, we sense that we need extra and extraordinary supernatural help. We know that we are no match for the forces in our universe. We recognize deep down within us that we need help from outside of ourselves. And it's a good idea then if we have a helping angel or if possibly we could have some Jedi power to deal with our circumstances. There's a hunger in us. For the supernatural and the writer of Hebrews in this passage tells us that the hunger for the supernatural is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is indeed above all powers who is indeed above all kings that Jesus is ultimately better and greater than angels he's better and greater than the force He's better and greater than Jedi's. He's better and greater. Look, than Superman, and Batman, and the Avengers. Let's let's just put them all together. Why? Because he's King of the Universe. You see, Michael W. Smith was correct theologically when he says, "Above all powers, and above all kings." And above all nature and above all created things, Jesus reigns supreme as king. He's above all. And because our Lord Jesus Christ is transcendent above all powers, including angels, this has ramifications for us how we live here and now. First of all, it means we have the supernatural help that we need in Jesus. And it means that we must trust in the exalted Son, recognize that we owe our origin to Christ, the exalted king, because it is through him that God made the world. We owe our continued existence to him because it is he who upholds the world by the word of his power. We owe our identity to him because the one who is the exalted son became the incarnated son. He did not Consider it shameful. He was not ashamed to call us brothers, but he identified with us in our human weakness without sin. He took flesh and blood. He became one of us. And because we have been joined to Christ by the Spirit, who is the Son par excellence, because we are united to the Son, we have now become sons or children of God. You see, all that we have, our origin, our existence, continued existence, and our identity belong to Christ, comes from him. And this one, who loves us, and to whom we belong as his children, will trust, will care for us. We do not need to trust, then, in supernatural power. We don't have to yearn for a grandmother to be up there somewhere watching over us and helping us through life. We don't have to trust our future and our decisions to fortune cookies. We don't have to trust the horoscope for our future. We have one who is above all powers and he cares for us, he loves us and he's working out his purposes on our behalf. And this one who loves us Give us our identity as Christian, this one is unchanging. It is not possible then that he will ever, ever change in his faithfulness and in his determination to care and to provide for us. We must trust him. But because Christ is above all, it means we must worship him. We must worship him. The passage tells us when God brought forth his Son into the world, he says, that all the angels of God worship him. And the passage before us demonstrates that he deserves to be worshipped. It employs four titles for Christ. He is the Son in verse 5. He is the Firstborn in verse 6. He is God in verse 8. He is the Lord in verse 10. These descriptions teach us that Christ is exalted in his dignity and exalted in his essence, in his being, and that the proper response then to one who is a son, the one who is Lord and God, the one who is a firstborn preeminent, is that we must fall down before him and that we must worship him. We must praise him. We must continually bring to him the sacrifice of praise because he is king. But thirdly, Thirdly, the reality that Jesus Christ is exalted above all powers, above angels, means that we must submit to him. We suffer from a disease, which you forgive me, I shall have to entitle royal pretensions. Royal pretensions. We suffer from royal pretensions the tendency to arrogate to ourselves divine prerogatives. In other words, we are no different from Adam and Eve who desire to be God. We want to be God because we want the right to determine our action without restraint, and without rebuke. We have royal pretensions. We have the desire to be gods. But our desire to be gods puts us in direct conflict with the king who alone reigns. It means, therefore, that if we are to live happily in this world, that if we are to know the benediction of God and the grace of God. If we are to know something of the favor of God, we must submit to the kingship of Jesus. We must humble ourselves before him. We must not raise up a rival deity to God himself. We must submit to him. We must not join the ancient people who were rebellious, nor our rebellious companions in contemporary society who cry out, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. God has established his only king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will rule forever. He will put down all opposition to his reign. He who sits in the heavens will laugh, and he will hold them in derision. He will speak in his wrath and distress those who oppose him with deep displeasure. What I'm simply saying, I'm quoting again from Psalm, at least alluding to Psalm 2 and the following verses. He will indeed bring down and crush every opposition. And the choice that faces us must simply be this. Are we going to be those who are crushed under the feet of Jesus? Or are we those who are... Welcome into his bosom. That's a choice that you and I must make. But all opposition to this king will be brought to nothing. It means that you and I must kiss the son, lest he be angry with us. And we perish in the way. We must be on good terms with King Jesus. We must begin to be on good terms with him by receiving him as our king and lord. We must confess our trespasses And our sins against him. We must call our sins what they are, which is rebellion. We must ask him for forgiveness. And we must trust in his mercy that he who died for us on the cross is the king of love. And that he will forgive us because he has paid for our sins. We must go to him and submit to the feet of Jesus. We must believe that he rose from the dead and rose for our justification. And then we must continue by taking his his yoke, taking his way upon us and learning from him who is meek and gentle of heart. We must exhibit the evidence of his reign in our lives by obeying his will by the grace of God and with the strength that comes from the Spirit, by enduring suffering. By esteeming the reproach of Christ far greater than all the riches of the world. And we must invest, if we are to submit to Jesus Christ, we must invest in eternity, knowing that we have a better inheritance and an enduring possession in heaven. Jesus is better, He's better than all principalities and powers because of His dignity. He's better than all because of his essence. He's unchanging in his being. He's better than all because of his lofty position and function as king of glory. May God help us to recognize him as our king, submit to him, and be blessed by him for Jesus' sake. Amen. a closing hymn rejoice the lord is king magnify you this afternoon knowing that there is none higher than you are that you are in the place of all authority and power perfectly situated to fulfill all your will and so we come and we submit to you we bow our hearts before you and we rejoice that our Savior is our King and that not only are you our King but you're the King of all men and we pray O Lord that you will come and bring your kingdom to consummation that all men may recognize you that you who are king are indeed king of all we pray that you would demonstrate your power in our lives and on our behalf that you would crush Satan under our feet that you would give us victory over the enemy that you would tear down doors and break down opposition And that you would liberate and help your people. We pray that you would do great and mighty things in our lives. Because you are our king. You are our God and you are our savior. And we pray not only Lord that you would do these things. But do it we pray. That we shall rejoice in you and praise your holy name. Bless your people. Watch over them we ask. Surround them with your grace. And make a way for them in this dark and sinful world. We pray this for Jesus sake. Amen.